Today we're going to be looking at chapter 4. There's a great deal in this chapter, so we're just going to be taking a few things and looking at them a little deeper. Please join me in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray this afternoon that your word would penetrate our hearts. I pray, Lord, for the redeemed. You would speak to us, Lord, as we seek you out, as we just sang of that breath of heaven, Lord, that you would fill us up. God, as we go through this scripture, that spiritual teacher, you'd help us, Lord, to be attentive, to seek out the truth from you. Lord, in our country today, in the world today, there's no greater need for men and women of Christ to go and to share the gospel. That you would teach us this afternoon, commit these things to our minds and our hearts. You would give us understanding of this passage, Lord. We can use it and go and serve you. Lord, I pray for those here today that don't know who Christ is, don't know that they have a need for him and the price that he paid for their sins. Today, Lord, might be the day that you would open up their eyes. Today might be the day you would help them to understand the great need from Christ. As we go through this and look at these concepts, Lord, that they become real to them today. Lord, we pray that you would continue to bless your church, Lord, here, Grace Family Church, as you've grown us, Lord, in numbers. We pray even more, Lord, that you would grow us spiritually. Pray, Lord, that you'd raise us up, the people that are pleasing to you. Lord, we pray that we take that gospel out, that we would be a light set on the hill. Lord, we pray that as we open up your word, you would teach us, Lord, we could take that out and be able to serve you. And Lord, each time we come and worship you, we pray. You would help us to better understand how to worship you and how to please you. And I pray, Lord, as we leave here, that we would say that surely the Lord was in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's been a few months since we last looked at chapter 3 of Galatians, so I'd like to give you some background so we're all familiar with what has transpired prior to here in chapter 4. Chapter 8, verse 1 starts off with, and Saul approved of his execution. As some introduction to Paul, a reminder of how Paul used to be, a reminder of the one who once persecuted the church, the one who approved of the murder of Christians. We first see Paul persecuting the church, opposing what Christ had established. But we all know that Paul was saying to the road of Damascus that the old man that was intent on persecuting the church and the new man came alive. Paul says in chapter 1 of Galatians that he was an apostle not from or through men, but through Christ. He states that he received the gospel not from man, but by Christ himself after meeting him on that road to Damascus. 
After Paul's conversion, we know his life's purpose was to spread the gospel in the area of Galatia is just one place that he had taken the gospel to. So keep that image of Paul's conversion in your head, what he came from, what he became. It will help you understand some of his statements later on in this chapter. The Galatians were happy to receive the gospel, and Paul states in this chapter that they would have done anything for him. It's a great story, isn't it? God miraculously converts a man. That man obediently makes it his life's work to spread the gospel. He takes it out, and people are converted. What a better story than that. The gospel goes out, and men are saved. But how quickly things change. We saw in chapter 1 how these very people that were converted are now perverting the gospel. It's so bad that Paul states that they have deserted Christ, turning to a different gospel. But Paul saw these people, the Galatians, as his children. He was greatly concerned for their spiritual well-being, for their spiritual growth. But he hears in them adding to the gospel things from the law like circumcision. Imagine for a second that it was you that had labored so hard to take the gospel to a group of people. They start off well and are willing to do anything for you and anything asked of you. Then they are persuaded by others and change the gospel that you had taught They add works of the law to the gospel. That's where Paul is right here. And that's why he is writing this letter to correct their error. Paul logically uses their knowledge of what we call the Old Testament along with the teachings of Christ to reason with them and to show them their mistakes. Paul's main theme of the book is the defense of the gospel and specifically that of justification, the act of God declaring us righteous due entirely to what Christ has done for us. In chapter 4, Paul progresses his defense of the gospel by using the secular example of a slave and comparing that with the spiritual example of slavery. So let's ensure we differentiate slavery of the 19th century that we are most familiar with, with this slavery that existed at the time Paul wrote this. We're all familiar with the 19th century slavery, so let me describe first century slavery, what the Galatians would have known and understood as Paul referred to it. In the Greek world, in the Roman world, most slaves were prisoners of war, but slaves could also own property, they can earn money, they can even be doctors in those days. Slavery at this time included indentured servitude, which was a means to address issues of poverty. I'm not saying that everyone in that day, every slave was treated well in the first century, because that's not the case. But I'm stating it was much different than 19th century slavery that we are most familiar with. We need to examine scripture and understand how the writer intended it, understanding the culture at the time it was written, and how the recipient would have understood what was written. Not trying to understand solely by what we know in our culture, but think about that idea of slavery in context in the way the Galatians would have thought of it. Paul uses this idea his audience was familiar with, the examples of slaves, to explain further the slavery the Galatians had placed himself under by going back to the law for righteousness. He will contrast that to being freed by Christ in the beginning of chapter 5. But in the end of chapter 3, Paul was explaining the purpose of the law, and he said that the law was our guardian until Christ came. Now we apply that word guardian, the concept to God, to his law, and to us. The law directed it, instructed, it taught us until the end goal of Christ. It brought us up and trained us until we can understand our need for Christ and why we needed him. So Paul ended chapter 3 stating that once we are in Christ, once we are the the redeemed, we are all one and all Abraham's offspring. We are heirs 
due to the promise. Heirs to what? To the new covenant, the redemption provided by Christ. This is explained in Hebrews chapter 9 where it reads, Therefore he is a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And Paul also explained this in the third chapter of Galatians. He said, Just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before him to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So as we go through this, just think of two groups of people. Paul, in this chapter, divides everyone into two different groups. The Jews saw these groups as the Jews and Gentiles, the Jews and everybody else, but Paul had a different division. He divided them into two different groups in order to show them their error, and we'll get to that in a minute. So we're going to approach this chapter a little different than I have done in the past. I would like to break the chapter into three main sections so we can better understand Paul's letter without getting so deep that I lose your interest and attention as we go through this. There's a lot here in this chapter. So let me read the first seven verses, the first section. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Paul starts off using this illustration of a family with children, and this particular family contained four groups of people. The natural-born children, the slave children, the guardian who was watching over and teaching all the children, and the father who was overseeing everything. So keep that picture in your mind as we move forward. You can also see in this description a spiritual application that we will get to later. So Paul describes how children were raised within families that had slaves and makes a spiritual illustration of that concept. He describes a family with natural-born children, the natural heirs being raised right alongside the slave children. Both of these children are under the same guardians and managers. The guardian is a person to whom the care of orphans is committed, and a steward is close to the same idea, probably used by Paul, to emphasize the term guardian. In the end of chapter 3, Paul stated that the law was our guardian until Christ came. The word guardian describes a concept that Galatians would have understood clearly, a concept known to the Jews, and the Greeks would have known this concept, and we need to understand this idea also, to understand what Paul's referring to. So Paul paints this picture of a guardian administering education with an end goal in mind. It gives a picture of the upbringing of children, children who need direction and teaching and instruction and discipline. But both the process of the education and the end goal are indicated by this word guardian. Paul told us earlier in Galatians that the law given to Moses at Mount Sinai was their guardian. And now Paul is taking that example and applying it to children and families, making the spiritual application. 
So we have a family with children that are natural born and are the heirs to the family's belongings and also a slave child being raised within that same family. There are people over the children raising them up with the end goal being some date set by the father, a time at which the training will be complete. The culmination of that training being when they are on their own, the culmination being when the inheritance will come. So both the slave and free child are raised together under the same guardian. There is no difference in their upbringing. One child by birth is rightfully the heir, the family heir. The other child, being a slave, has no right to the inheritance. There is nothing that child can do to gain the heirship. So I hope this illustration is becoming clear to you as it applies to us. As it applies to us but if not, we'll shed some more light on it. Hopefully you can see that application. It starts to become more apparent. So Paul takes this illustration that was common to them and he applies it to the Galatians. He uses this to explain their error to make them see how they are wrong and going back to the law and adding to the gospel. So in a spiritual sense, we are all the same. We are all born slaves to this world. Not one of us ever have any right to salvation. We were unable to keep the law and are rightfully required to pay the price for our sin. Yet verse 4 tells us that Christ was born under the law. He came to fulfill the law on behalf of those that could not do it themselves. We have our Messiah on one side, the one who always did what pleased the Father, and the remainder of us on the other side. So Jesus Christ is the heir, and the rest of us are the slaves with no inherent right to become heirs. We are enslaved to the world, we are slaves to Satan, yet some will remain enslaved to Satan, and some will be freed. But not only freed, but some will become heirs due to the promise God made to Abraham. Every human being is born a slave to the world. But the Father, knowing we had no way for redemption in ourselves, first foreshadowed the grace that would be offered to us early in the book of Genesis around chapter 3. He alluded to the fact that he would send his son to provide that redemption for us. The Father then put in place his law as our guardian. It was our schoolmaster with the goal to bring the redeemed into heirship. And that law educated us on God and his requirements, and most of all, It showed us that we could not uphold it. It showed the redeemed that we need the Messiah. We needed someone that could perfectly uphold it to fulfill it for us. That was what the prophets looked for for millennia, for the Messiah to come. The father sent his son, born of a woman, to redeem us who were under the law. The redemption from Christ Jesus provided our adoption into the family of God. We became heirs through Christ. We went from slaves to sons, and as a result, being sons, we became heirs. The indwelling of that spirit in those he has redeemed is why we can proclaim, Abba, Father. Let's quickly look at that phrase that Paul mentions, Abba, Father. Every time Abba is used in Scripture, it's followed by the translation, Father. In the New Testament, this term is always used to address God the Father, and it was an expression common in the early church. It denotes a childlike intimacy and trust and represents a new relationship with God in the way that word is used. Jesus used it to address the Father, and the heirs through Christ can do the same thing. The word Abba represents a relationship between Christ and the Father, and now between the redeemed and the Father. We see Christ himself used as God the Son addresses God the Father as Abba Father in Mark 14, where it reads, And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. 
Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus was praying to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane when he refers to the Father as Abba, Father. There's nothing that will bring us more joy than to know that we were once slaves to Satan and our Father provided every means to redeem us through his Son. We were adopted and became heirs and are now sons. We are heirs through Christ. Christ was the rightful heir that could proclaim Abba, Father, and through him that we can the same thing. Now, honestly, I think we can stop right here. We can fall on our hands and knees. Praise God that he redeemed us. He should stop one of us. That image in the head, that image in the head of the Galatians, Paul has to be turned from man. Paul used the same illustration of Normally, when you didn't know God, you were slaves to those that by nature are not God. But now that you've come to know God, They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. 
So in these verses, we get a feel for Paul's great concern for the Galatians. Having shown them the adoption they are giving up, he pleads with them to see their error. Paul goes back to his example of being slaves. He states that when we did not know God, we were slaves to those things that are not God's. Verse 8 here is interesting. Paul describes something he will tell the Romans, but a different way. He states that they have come to know God, and that's what he's speaking out The same idea to the Galatians and does to the Romans in chapter 3, 13. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So what Paul is saying here, he's saying that we are on an equal playing field. We are all sinners and need a salvation given through Christ. But the redeemed have become known to God. Yet how can we want to turn back to slavery to those things that are not even God? Those weak and worthless things that we bow down to. How can we want to make ourselves slaves to things of the world that have no meaning? If we are no longer enslaved to the elements of the world, if we've been freed by Jesus Christ, going back to the law does nothing for us. to the law This is beyond comprehension. All the sweat, all the tears, all the really must have been wasted his time. He didn't want to turn from that for their worthless things. I'm reminded of the Israelites when I read this. Let me refresh our memory of what the Israelites stated so you understand what I mean. And the scripture says, And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions. And the garlic. As soon as the Israelites faced difficulties, they were ready to go back into slavery for the sole purpose of feeding the flesh. After God brought them out of slavery from the Egyptians, they wanted to go back merely for food to feed the flesh. God say, are we not the same? Let's think about ourselves. We sit in high and lofty places, confident in education, our comprehension of Scripture, our sophistication. We know so much more about God than they did. We have so much access to Scripture. We attend Bible conferences. We watch and listen to the news. We know in our lives that we too long for that slavery. Even as a redeemed, we battle with our flesh daily. Our flesh is drawn back to that old man. We have more revelation of God than Israelites ever did. We have much more knowledge of the Messiah than they ever dreamed of. Yet, we allow our flesh to take us back into slavery. Our flesh longs for that music we used to listen to, so we go back to it. We long for those fun activities we used to do when we were lost, and slowly we allow ourselves to go back to them. We long for those good times and the friends we once had when we were lost and allow ourselves to go back to them. I share this from a personal struggle years ago as a new Christian. We start to abuse the freedom we have in Christ by going back to the slavery that still places us in. 
Only now is we deem we are no longer under the bondage of sin, but we do willingly. We tell ourselves that we have liberty in Christ, we justify allowing our flesh to go back to the very sin that we are supposed to be turning from. So you see, we too long for the meat and the fish, the cucumbers, the meat, the onions, and the garlic. We allow our flesh to focus on the slavery of sin, we allow our flesh to focus on the way that we need to be. So we're not going to be in Israel. that these relations would have done anything for him, yet now they treat him as an enemy as he's telling them the truth. They once would have given anything for Paul, and now he brings the truth, yet he is treated as their enemy. Think about it. If that was us, if we poured everything into bringing the gospel to a group of people, and they appeared to pervert the teachings, to turn away from what was taught, we too would be perplexed. We too would think our labor had been in vain. Paul states that he is in anguish for them. He compares the pain he has to the pain of childbirth. It's to the point that Paul states he's doubting and unsure about them and now unsure about how he should proceed. And in earnest admonition, he states, brothers, become as I am. It's worth noting that through this book, through the errors the Galatians have made, through him stating they may have deserted Christ, through him stating that anyone who brings another gospel should be set aside for destruction, Paul still calls them brothers. He does not cut off fellowship, but he addresses their error out of his great love for them. We witness Paul playing a pastoral role with the Galatians, and we also see his great love for them and how he reacts, how he reacts to their error. So consider, consider two verses of what Paul says in verses 11 and 20. He says, I am afraid I may have made an end of you in vain.
He's perplexed about how they act, but calls them the children of promise. We could all learn from this and should learn how Paul reacted toward them, still concerned, still treating them as brothers in Christ, even though they erred. He is in great pain, but wants them to repent and to grow in Christ, for them to see their sin and error and to turn from it. He was not ready to give up on them, so he continued to persuade them of the truth. In these 13 verses, what a great love we see that Paul had for them. What patience and dedication to their good. What an excellent model for us. As Paul stated in 1 Corinthians 11, he imitated to me as I am of Christ. As Paul closes in verse 1, he's stating how he is perplexed. Is that a loss? And why did he go back to slavery? As we go to this last section of scripture, think back that Jews thought it was them and everybody else. That's not the way Paul described it. The first group through this chapter is referred to in different ways. The covenant of grace, the priesthood, and Sarah, the end, the Jerusalem, above. These represent those who were redeemed by Christ and the elect. The second group in this passage, the covenant of work. The law gave them Mount Sinai to Moses, slaves to the world, present Jerusalem and Hagar. These all represent the lost, the reprobate. So keep those two groups in mind as we go through this last section. Let me read those verses. Start in verse 21. You who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? It was written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, being children to slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is her mother, for it is written, Rejoice, so bear one who does not bear. Take forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of the promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. These last verses seem a bit complicated, but when we understand what Paul's doing here, when we consider 
the two groups of people he's talking about, it's easier to understand. So picture everyone in either of those two groups. All of mankind will be in one of those two groups. In our society right now, we like to make these divisions by race and ethnicity, social status and wealth and lineage and political affiliation and education. But ultimately, everyone that ever existed will fit into one of these two groups that Paul mentions. Keep in mind Paul's illustration and his intent of this book in the chapter. Paul's showing the Galatians their error of adding the law to the gospel. He does this by dividing people into these two groups, the redeemed who are free and the lost who are slaves to the world. Not Jews and Greeks, but slave and free. That is it. There is nobody else. We are one or the other, although the redeemed start off as slaves and are freed in Christ. So Paul is explaining how the Galatians were wanting to go back to being slaves to the world by adding the law to the gospel. So he goes to another illustration based on their knowledge of Scripture. He uses Abraham and his two sons, his wife Sarah and the handmaiden Hagar, as his example. Paul is using this idea of slave and free and applying his reasoning to Scripture teachings they were all familiar with. So first we see the concept used with Abraham's wife. So Sarah being the wife of Abraham who represented the free and Hagar being the handmaiden represents the slave. Now we see it mentioned with Abraham's two sons. Paul mentions the two sons of Abraham. One is a slave and one who was free. And then he states that this can be interpreted allegorically. Paul is interpreting the story of Abraham and his two sons as a symbolic representation. He states that Sarah and Hagar represent two covenants. A commitment between God and man with God providing the terms of that covenant. Paul is comparing the covenant of grace to Sarah who was free, and compared the covenant of works to the slave, Hagar. Sarah the free and Hagar the slave, two covenants. Sarah as a promise of grace through Christ, and Hagar as the law and slavery to it. Two sides there, one or the other, not Jew and Greek, but slave and free still. The covenant given at Mount Sinai to Moses with the law, the covenant of works is equated to Hagar the slave. A covenant of works pictured as slavery. Covenant of grace fulfilled through Christ as compared to Sarah represents freedom. So Paul starts off asking them and getting them to think about their desire to add the law to the gospel. Remember, in chapter 1, Paul stated that they were deserting Christ and turning to another gospel. And this wasn't a minor thing. He stated that if he or an angel or anyone preached another gospel, they should be accursed. So he tells them, if you desire to be under the law, have you considered those implications of it? He goes back to Father Abraham to what they were all familiar with, with the one person they wanted to identify with. Abraham's two sons, Ishmael, birthed by Hagar, the slave woman, and Isaac, birthed by Sarah, wife to Abraham, and the free woman. Let's look at Hagar and Ishmael a little deeper. Ishmael, the son of the slave, born according to the flesh. This takes us back to Genesis 16, where it describes Sarah as bearing Abraham no children. So she tells Abraham to go into Hagar, the handmaiden, to conceive. But in chapter 15, prior to that, God told Abraham specifically he would have an heir when he complained of having none. God stated that Abraham would have his very own son and that his offspring would be like the stars of heaven. And that's where it states that he believed the Lord and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, he believed the promise, yet when Sarah did not bear children, instead of going back to what God had promised, Abraham listened to his wife and conceived with Hagar the slave. Instead of faith in God, they went back to the flesh to what they could do. And isn't that just like us? Every once in a while, even though we know God's promises from Scripture, we fail to trust him. 
We too fail to have faith and we go out on our own. We are no different than Abraham. We have the same common sin nature. They turn from the provision and promise of God and we do the very same thing. Why can't we simply trust in God and not in ourselves? Paul correlates specifically Hagar to the Mosaic covenant given at Mount Sinai, the law given to Moses. We see the picture of the Mosaic law and how it relied on the flesh, it relied on man, and it was impossible for us to fulfill. When we rely on the flesh, it results in utter failure to us. He also ties Hagar and the image of slavery to present Jerusalem, specifically those that still cling to the Mosaic law, to those that have trusted in the non-trustworthy flesh. How many times must we see that in our flesh there is no good thing that our flesh can only bring upon us judgment? Now we have the other side, the side of Sarah and Isaac, the free Isaac being the child of promise. They represent being freed from bondage. Paul refers to the Galatians as being like Isaac, children of the promise, those that have been freed. This represents the covenant of grace, our redemption through the Messiah, freedom from the bondage of sin. We are not children of the slave, but we are children of the free woman. Redeemed, we are not slaves, but we are the true. We are those that can Christ the God the Father and the six words from this entire chapter. Six words apply to everyone here, to those that may not yet know Christ, but are seeking out some truth. To the new believer who is soaking up truth from Scripture like a sponge, and to the more mature believer who is astonished at how we can never exhaust our knowledge of an infinite God. These six words are useful to every one of us. Just six words I want you to remember from everything said today. and I'll get to those in just a minute. This afternoon we placed ourselves in Paul's shoes. We looked at his situation in light of what he would have seen. Hopefully this has given you a good picture of what has transpired in this chapter. Hopefully you're not too confused. But Paul described every single one of us. We are all born as slaves, slaves to the elementary principles of the world. We are born slaves to sin and slaves to the prince of the air, Satan. You maybe say, not me, I'm no slave to Satan, but that idea is contrary to Scripture, contrary to what Paul taught in the second chapter of Ephesians. At one time, we were all dead in our sins, by nature, children to wrath. Nobody can deny that. That's how we all started, but thanks be to God, we do not have to remain that way. Our Father in heaven set over his elect guardians and managers until the day he set. When the fullness of time had come, he sent forth his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to redeem us who were under the law. And that redemption makes us sons. We become heirs due to Christ. We are no longer slaves, but heirs to God. Think about that, the two types of people I had listed, and ask yourself which side you were on. We're all slaves to someone. Who are you a slave to today? Are you a willing slave to our Lord Jesus Christ, or are you a slave, maybe even unknowingly, to the prince of the power of the air, to Satan? We know that the Galatians were persuaded into false beliefs by the Judaizers. What can we learn from this? How are we misled today? How can we prevent being persuaded by others into believing error. So the six words I mentioned earlier are the key to keeping us from doing the same thing the Galatians did. To the redeemed, these six words will keep you on course until you are taken from this world. And to those that do not yet know Christ, these six words will guide you to the truth. In verse 30, 
Paul asked a most pressing question for us. He said, but what does the scripture say? But what does the scripture say? If you remember those six words and go back to them, it will help you keep from being misled. God is the source of truth. We need to look to God's words for answers. We need to look there to verify everything that we see or we hear. Scripture is the inspired word of God and nothing else is. No man, no other book, no dream, just the word of God. We have contained in these 66 books. So how do we go wrong? How do we end up like the Galatians? In our society today, it's easy to find an answer to anything. We can do a web search and find endless answers, endless resources, some true and some not so true. So when we have a question about Scripture, it's easy to go to a video, to a website, to a message online to find an answer. That in itself is not necessarily bad. But we go wrong when we do not compare what we see, what we hear to Scripture. We can go to those things, but when we do, we also need to ask ourselves, but what does Scripture say? I know so-and-so said this, this message stated that, the notes in my study Bible stated this, at this conference we heard that. Are any of those things inspired? No, they're not. But what does the Scripture say? What does God say through his word? That is the source of truth, and that is where we need to go to keep us from error. And yes, it's not always easy searching scripture, studying it out to find truth, but that is a mark of a mature Christian, one who diligently seeks out truth from scripture. Everything must be measured in light of scripture. But what does the scripture say? Scripture says to us today that we are either slaves or free. Those that are of God are those that are none of God. And to which group do you fall? To whom are you enslaved today? Where do you stand? Christ stood in the place of the redeemed and took on God's wrath for us, and I will ever praise his name for what he has done for me and for what he has done for you. So which side are you on? Are you still enslaved to sin? Are you still dead in your sins? Or do you now have the freedom from sin offered by Christ? Are you now one of the redeemed servants to the Most High God? But what does the Scripture say? It says that God provided a way for his elect to be freed from slavery. It says that we had no right to be true sons of God, but once we're redeemed, we're heirs through God. But what does the Scripture say? It says that to us, the redeemed, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, That we can rightfully proclaim, Abba, Father. But what does the scripture say? It says that we were all enslaved to the elementary principles of this world, but God sent his son to redeem those under the law so that we would be adopted as sons. What does the scripture say? It says that Christ has set us free. Scripture says you were one or the other, slave or free, So where do you stand? What does the scripture say? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, how grateful we are that we live in a day where we have the revealed word of God to us. We have scripture to go to and such easy access to seek these things out. Lord, I pray you would teach us through this. Help us to see, Lord, we're no different than the Israelites. We're no different than the Galatians. We suffer from the same things, have the same proclivities, the same sin that wants to take us back, Lord. I pray, Lord, that as we see the Galatians in their error 
being so easily misled. We remember those words, but what does the scripture say? I pray, God, that we would seek you out with all diligence, things we hear and see and listen to and watch, that we would go back to scripture like those Bereans who are more noble than the others. I pray, God, that we would seek you out in the truth from scripture, our foundation would be that, Lord. I pray, Lord, as we go into your word, as we see these things, as we see the error of others, you would realize and show us, Lord, that we're all alike. Lord, we all fail. We all need Christ who paid that price for the redeemed. None of us can uphold that law, your perfect law. None of us, God, were in the line of airship. No one had the right to salvation. But you sent your son Christ and provided a way for us to be that fulfillment of the law. I pray, Lord, for those here today that may not understand, that don't know Christ, that don't understand their sin, and the concept of being born into slavery, the sin, that you might open up their eyes, Lord, in the way you open up the, lot, the eyes of all of the redeemed, to who we once were and how we were born at enmity with God, and no desire for him or the things of God, God pursued us. God provided a way. Lord, I pray in this time that we live in as we see things in our country and our society, things seem to be turning worse. That would drive us even more, Lord, to seek you out, to seek your truth, to take these things, to take it out to those people that are searching for answers. Show them what real truth is. God, I pray for your church here, for Grace Family Church. I pray you continue to build us up and to a place that's pleasing for you. Lord, I pray that you would prepare us for the days that might come when persecution may be here in America. Lord, I pray for the fathers and mothers that would train up their children for another generation, the children of people that honor you, that seek you out, that want to serve you. Lord, I pray that each time we come in here and open up your word, you would help us to understand our purpose of being here. We are here to worship you. We would come here to meet with you, knowing, Lord, that you're going to bring us that bread of heaven and feed us with what we need. Lord, I pray that we would have glorified you and all that was done here this afternoon. Lord, I pray as we, as we go out of here, we have that time to fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, those people that you brought together with us. You would help us, Lord, that we would hold each, each other accountable. Lord, that we would encourage one another, we would come alongside one another, Lord. You know the things that each one of us face. Whether we have health issues, or issues at work, or family issues, whatever it may be, Lord, you know how, how needy we are. I pray we come alongside one another to encourage one another as we serve together. Lord, I pray you would grow your church into a place that's pleasing for you. Lord, I pray you would help us to understand that the fields are widened to harvest. You would send the laborers into the field. You would send us there, Lord. I pray that we would long for that day when you'll come for us, Lord, to be able to see our Savior. But until that day comes, I pray that we'd be busy about the Father's business. We model ourselves after Christ, after our Savior, who always did those things that pleased the Father. Dear God, as we go out of here, I pray that you would have taught us through your Scripture, Lord. You would. Help each one of us, Lord, even through the ramblings that you would have taught us from your word, Lord, that we take something out of here to be able to serve you better. 
And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.